I think I would have taken risks earlier. I think often those of us who go into medicine are pretty much walk the straight and narrow, and we, we may miss opportunities because we're risk averse. That was Dr. Nancy Brown, Dean Yale School of Medicine, reflecting on what, in retrospect, she might have done differently in her career. I'm Gary Bisbee, and this is Fireside Chat. Nancy shared her impressive background and successes in medicine and research. She described her commitment to leadership and helping people succeed and develop their careers. She made reference to her mentors, many of whom were men. She focused on learning the language of men since there are clear differences between the language of each gender. Nancy outlined the priorities developed during her first 10 months at the School of Medicine, including a focus on health equity. She described the medical school student body as being 50% each women and men, 27% underrepresented in medicine, and 10% first-generation college graduates. Nancy discussed the Yale Cultural Ambassadors Program and the major successes it has had in increasing diversity enrollment in Yale clinical trials. Let's listen. It certainly has in the fiscal year 20 had about 27,000 patients enrolled in clinical trials. 30% of all participants were from groups that are underrepresented and that's really just extraordinary. Nancy returned to the Cultural Ambassador Program, discussing how it has evolved from a primary focus on increasing diversity in clinical trials to increasing diversity in clinical medicine. We moved from being about research to really being about clinical medicine and understanding what the needs of the community are and also being able to communicate how the community can access health care. I'm delighted to welcome Dean Nancy Brown to the microphone. Well, good afternoon, Nancy, and welcome. Thank you. We're pleased to have you at this microphone. Let's start by learning more about you and your role as Dean of the Yale School of Medicine, dig into your priorities and incentives, and then wrap up with your view on leadership. You received your undergraduate degree from Yale College, your medical degree from Harvard, moved on to Vanderbilt for internship and residency. When did you decide on medicine? I loved science growing up and read a lot about medicine, but I wasn't sure that that was the pathway for me. I benefited from a mentor here at Yale, a man named Ethan Nadell, who encouraged me in that direction. But it wasn't until after I graduated and I was working in business that I realized I really did want to go to medical school and applied. So I see you majored in molecular biophysics and biochemistry. Those are two heavyweight degrees. It's a single department here and phenomenal teachers. I remember being taught by, in some cases, a Nobel laureate. And I was just in awe of the biology and the combination of mathematics and physics and biology. And I have to confess that MBNB had fewer laboratory requirements than a straight biology major. And I was involved with women's crew and it meant that it was easier to go to practice. So that was a factor. Well, you've been so active in research and so accomplished in research. I wondered if you picked up your research interests while you were at Yale. I did. I worked in the laboratory of Ethan Nadell as a senior. And he, as I said, was very influential in saying, you know, you really need to keep doing this. And he was one of a long lines of mentors who have influenced my career. 
So when you left Yale, did you ever think that you'd return as dean of the Yale School of Medicine? No, I did not. (laughs) I would say even a year ago, I was surprised. Well, congratulations. Everybody at Yale that I talked to is absolutely delighted. When you left Harvard Med, you made the decision to pursue your internship and residency at Vanderbilt. What was behind that decision, Nancy? That too was somewhat pragmatic. My husband and I were both finishing our respective graduate schools. My father was in the Air Force and moving, and his family was in Nashville. And so we recognized at that time to have a dual career family and have kids and whatnot, it would be helpful to be surrounded by family. And Vanderbilt is a superb institution and was a great place to develop a career and really spend most of my career. We've seen over the years the percentage of medical students who are women increase, and I think now it's maybe even a little bit more than 50%. Do you remember what it was when you were at Harvard Medical School? I do. It was about 25% at the time. So medicine obviously has historically been a male-dominated profession. You've been exceptionally successful. So as a woman, how have you had to adjust through the years? I think, again, I benefited from some extraordinary mentors, many of whom were men. And so I I don't think it's necessary that your mentors look like you. I would say that learning to speak the language of the prevailing leaders, which often was the language of men and men and women, I think, do speak differently, was useful. I sometimes joke that one of the best preparations I've had for leadership is having three sons. Well, that makes good sense. Speaking of leadership, how and when did you become involved in leadership, Nancy? I was a chief resident in medicine after I had finished my residency and my fellowship, was invited to do that by a man named John Oates, who was chair of medicine at the time. And I would say that was the first major leadership role that I had in medicine. What have you found to be the most rewarding about leadership? I really enjoy seeing people succeed and helping them develop their careers and It's awesome to be working with talented people. How would you characterize your leadership style? I tend to believe that we should put the best possible people in roles. We should mentor them, but we also need to delegate to them and occasionally let them make mistakes. I would say I lead by consensus, but every once in a while, you also have to make the hard decision and take responsibility for it. You were so active and accomplished in research at Vanderbilt, are you able to continue your research pursuits as dean? I actually am still engaged in research. I have a research laboratory meeting once a week. It's a pretty modest engagement compared to what it's been in the past, but in some ways it's very therapeutic. And I also think that it's important for faculty to know that I walk the walk. Would you make any changes in your career progression if you could have a quote-unquote, do-over? I think I would have taken risks earlier. I think often those of us who go into medicine are pretty much walk the straight and narrow, and we we may miss opportunities because we're risk-averse. What award or recognition that you've received has been the most meaningful to you? It's a funny one. It's an award called the Fry Verler Foundation Award, and it's a for a small foundation in a very narrow area of research, the Calocrine Kynan system. And I think it meant so much because it was a group of peers with whom I had grown up. Why don't we move to your deanship of the Yale School of Medicine? You assumed the position of dean around 10 months ago. 
How does it feel to be back in New Haven? I am really enjoying it. New Haven is a walkable town. We have great restaurants. I do miss having access to all of our museums during this period of COVID, but I'm really enjoying it quite a bit. Are you living in New Haven or out in the suburbs? I'm living in New Haven. I live on one side of campus, opposite the side of campus where the School of Medicine is, so I can often walk through campus on my way to work. Will you please describe your role as dean of the School of Medicine? Yes, this is a classic School of Medicine with three overarching missions, a large research mission. We're actually sixth in NIH funding in the country based on the Blue Ridge rankings. We have a large clinical operation professional practice plan led by Paul Tahiri. We saw about two and a half million patient visits in the prior fiscal year and an educational mission that's extremely important. We have 104 students per year, about 900 residents and 400 fellows. And so it really is the classic triple mission. When you come into a position like this, obviously you bring your point of view. How do you determine your priorities and your strategy? I spent a lot of time before I arrived meeting with people, meeting with the leadership in the school and in the hospital in Yale New Haven Health System and listening and starting to refine my impression of the institution and what our strengths were, but where we had opportunity. And I would say this is an amazing place, but we are not achieving all that we can achieve. For example, we have excellent research We tend to have silos of excellence and we have opportunities to collaborate across departments. I think we could do a better job of developing people, both our young people. There's a need to develop our physician scientists a little bit more. But I think we've neglected, as is traditional in academic medicine, the development of our leaders and very small investments in leadership development and organizational leadership have, as you know, a a huge return on investment for an institution like this. So those are a few of the priorities. We obviously have lots of priorities around growing our research mission in areas compatible with a university strategic plan, but we've been doing strategic plan in this area as well. And we've begun strategic planning in education to think about how we develop our curriculum in the 21st century. So has the COVID surge and all that goes along with that caused a slowdown of your implementation of your priorities? It's really interesting. In some ways, I think the pandemic and our new ways of communicating have facilitated establishing and pursuing our priorities. The ability to convene people by Zoom is extraordinary. I gave a state of the school in the summer, which normally would have been given in an auditorium that held maybe 300 and people would probably not have been able to pull themselves away from clinic. It was viewed by 1,700 people. We just revised our mission statement and we did it through a series of surveys and focus groups and then repeat surveys and again had extraordinary participation in that in a way that I don't think we would have been able to achieve. What's more difficult in COVID is recruiting. Getting people on campus to visit is a real art form. It takes a lot of creativity and a fair amount of testing. So I would say we've been a little bit slower than I would like to be in getting the team in place, but otherwise it hasn't slowed us down. How do you interrelate with Marna Borgstrom and Yale New Haven Health System? Yes, well, Marna, of course, is the CEO of the system, and our two organizations are entirely dependent on each other. 
financially a school of medicine really supports its research and educational missions through clinical revenue. But more importantly, more and more research is done in the clinical setting. And of course, we train, as I said, about 900 residents and 400 fellows in the hospital and clinics. And that now extends to several of our delivery network hospitals. And I think what we bring to the system is, I hope, a quality of medicine that's not available outside of the system and the ability to build diagnostic and excellence in care that's extraordinary. What's the class size, by the way? Our class size is 104. And could you profile the so-called average student? I mean, what's the degrees? What's the gender percentage? What are their aspirations? That sort of thing? Sure. Our average class is about 50-50 men and women now. 27% of our incoming class for the last couple of years has been underrepresented in medicine. And 10% are first-generation college graduates, which is really extraordinary. These are very talented students They're very self-motivated. The Yale School of Medicine ascribes to a system of education, the Yale system, that really treats our students like adults with a fair amount of self-direction. And our students come here with a lot of curiosity, knowing what they want to do. And so if we can point them in the right direction, they accomplish amazing things. Full disclosure, when I was in the PhD program at Yale and on the faculty there, I actually taught a couple of classes in the medical school. That That is fabulous. Prehistoric age, Nancy, unfortunately. Are the medical school classes virtual or in person, or how have you been able to handle that? We are using a hybrid model. So we brought our, of course, our clerkship students are in the hospital but we brought our first and second year students back this summer, the end of the summer. We had a in-person white coat ceremony, which was fabulous with social distancing. The family members were not able to attend in person, but did so online. And the students spend a lot of their time doing courses on Zoom, but they come in and rotate when they come in in small groups. I've been able to meet with them in small groups, and that's enabled them to establish their community as a class, and also to get into the hospital and the clinics a little bit, just to get a taste of why they're here and what they're aspiring to become. How about research and COVID? Has research been able to progress at pace or was it slowed down a bit? Some research has been accelerated, of course. That's the research in immunobiology related to COVID. But in general, this has been a strain on our our researchers And you've probably read that women researchers have been affected more than men researchers because of the common role of women as the primary person responsible for child care in a home. And so as they're working from home, that's had more of an impact. We've done a number of things to help our junior faculty. We just created gap funding for all of our researchers who were within their first three years of appointment. And to date, about 120 researchers have come forward and taken that gap funding. And it's been a big morale booster so that people know that even if they are not getting quite as much done, their startup packages will not erode. And we've extended the tenure clock and we've done a lot of work to try to help facilitate their getting into the lab. Our non-COVID labs reopened in June. How about in terms of curriculum, how do you see the medical school curriculum evolving over time? We did a curriculum reboot about five years ago now, and I would say that we now are 
continually tweaking our curriculum. Most recently, we focused on creating a health equity thread to really address what are the drivers of health disparities and what are the issues around access, for example, and to do this in a way where it's embedded in all of our courses. So we're very excited about that. How about healthcare financing and delivery? Do you see that becoming a bigger part of the curriculum through the years? Again, because Yale offers a fair amount of self-direction, we have a number of students who are very interested in this. And of course, like so many schools, we have several who do a joint MD business degree. We have a couple of partnerships with our colleagues in the School of Management, more not at the student level, but at the faculty and residency and fellowship level to think about healthcare leadership, healthcare financing and delivery. And of course, we have a School of Public Health as well, where several faculty focus on healthcare delivery and a number of our students also do joint MD-MPHs. Well, could we turn now to the Yale Cultural Ambassador Program? We became aware of this recently. It certainly a unique program designed to bolster minority participation in clinical trials. Could you please describe the Yale Cultural Ambassador Program for us, Nancy? I would love to. This is a two-way partnership between Yale and the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Churches of Connecticut, which are one of the country's oldest African-American congregations. And the Junta for Progressive Action, which is one of the oldest community-based not-for-profit groups in the city, which is focused on Latino advocacy. The partnership originally was focused on clinical and translational research and was designed to address the lack of minority participation in clinical research. But it has been so much more than that. And our cultural ambassadors have spent hours training in clinical research and are very articulate about the need for clinical research. And they have really made a dent in the participation and it's helping us to address the disparity and its negative impacts on the health of our minority communities. Has it actually resulted in definable increase in minorities in clinical trials? It certainly has in the Fiscal year 20 had about 27,000 patients enrolled in clinical trials. 30% of all participants were from groups that are underrepresented. And that's really just extraordinary. Amazing. Terrific. So I would assume that the program is also, and you made reference to this, useful for you bridging to the community. And I'm wondering, in particular in the case of COVID, has it been helpful to communicate with the community? It sure has. During the COVID pandemic, we actually started meeting weekly and sometimes more often than that. So we moved from being about research to really being about clinical medicine and understanding what the needs of the community are and also being able to communicate how the community can access healthcare. So things like understanding the background on precautions in the health system in terms of limiting visitors, helping people know what to do in terms of calling hotlines for clinical care. The community was able to emphasize for us what their concerns were, working on messaging around mask distribution. The ambassadors have been extremely interested in getting out the community for flu vaccination understanding how important that will be this winter. And they're now working on messaging about our safety protocols in the clinic 
so that patients won't put off getting care for routine medical conditions in this era where we're doing a lot of COVID testing to get people into clinics. I'm wondering if one of the manifestations of the program is to encourage youth in the community to develop an interest in science, research, medicine, and so on? It is. The leaders of the cultural ambassadors are extremely interested in our engaging youth in medicine, not just as potential for training to become physicians, but understanding that there is a wealth of careers available to people in medicine. We actually have a physician associate program here. And of course, our nursing school has a nurse practitioner program. But thinking about technicians and other areas, they have been great advocates in the community for our young people. And we're really excited about that. Why don't we move to academic medicine, which in the U.S. has been lauded for quality of research, innovation, and clinical practice, particularly for tertiary and quaternary care. Can the current rate of progress be sustained in the increasingly financially constrained environment? I think it can, but we cannot do business the way we've been doing it for many years. We have to be more efficient. We have to take inefficient expense out of the system. We have to partner with industry a little bit more and diversify the funding for our research programs. So those are a few of the things that we need to do. What about working with our elected representatives? Have you had success working with them to understand the value of our medical research? We have. We've been very fortunate in Connecticut in that our elected representatives, I think, really do understand the value of academic medicine. We work with our government relations folks here at Yale to communicate. And our Yale faculty have been instrumental in communicating about COVID, for example. So President-elect Biden's task force on COVID is co-led by three people. One of them is Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, who's a faculty member and our newly appointed associate dean for health equity research. The other Two are Vivek Murthy, the former Surgeon General, who is a Yale alumnus, and David Kessler, who is the former Dean of the School of Medicine. So we're very excited about that. That is exciting. You mentioned costs and improvements and so on in efficiency. And I'm wondering, do you have any thoughts about the reimbursement system as it's currently formed? Is there ways that we can more explicitly fund research through the reimbursement system? I think there are opportunities and more and more payers are coming to appreciate that participation in research by patients does not necessarily mean more cost and may mean better outcomes. And I think our cancer centers nationally have been effective in engaging all patients in research. I think we have lots more opportunities there. I also think we need to look at how the National Institutes of Health fund research and, as I mentioned, start to diversify the funding for our research programs to include more engagement with industry. Nancy, this has been a terrific interview. I'd like to wrap up with some questions about leadership, which we would all agree is important to the success of any organization. You mentioned your first real leadership was when you were chief resident, but would you say that when you became involved in leadership, you were an intentional or an accidental leader? I would say a bit of both. My father was a general officer in the Air Force, and I was the youngest child, so I was the last kid at home when my parents would talk about work things at the dinner table. And so I think I heard a lot of leadership philosophy and perhaps by osmosis. 
I was very involved in research leadership. I never intended to become a chair of a department of medicine or a dean. And I think that was perhaps a matter of being in the right place at the right time and some, some events that happened. As a successful woman leader in a largely male profession, and you've addressed this a bit before, but what's been your approach? As I said, I think being a mother of three sons has been very useful. I think being as straightforward as I can be, and I think any woman of my generation who's grown up into leadership has had a sense at times that we have to perform better to get credit for what we do. And I hope that the next generation doesn't have to do that to the same extent, but it's a reality. What are the most important characteristics of a leader during a crisis, would you say? I think communication is critical. It's critical anytime, but even more so during a crisis because you have to frame what's going on and have to maintain focus on values. It's helpful to remain calm. And I think the ability to step back and analyze choices and then make those choices so that you're not frozen. Sometimes just moving forward is a good thing. With the final question, how has the COVID crisis changed you as a leader and a family member? I think as a leader, it's perhaps made me a little more agile. We've just had to respond in real time to many things and has maybe accelerated my collaboration across the university. It's had a number of effects on me as a family member. My father passed away in May, not of COVID per se, but certainly his health was affected by the COVID pandemic and his medical experience was affected by the COVID pandemic. So I think that has given me a perspective as we take care of patients on how important it is to provide support for them at a difficult time. Nancy, this has been a terrific interview. We very much appreciate your time. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Fireside Chat with Gary Bisbee is a Health Management Academy podcast produced by Think Medium. Please subscribe to Fireside Chat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Be sure to rate and review Fireside Chat so we can continue to explore key issues with innovative and dynamic healthcare leaders. In addition to subscribing and rating, we found that podcasts are known through word of mouth and we appreciate your spreading the word to friends or those who might be interested. Fireside Chat is brought to you from our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., where we explore the strategies of leading health systems through conversations with CEOs and other interesting leaders. For questions and suggestions about Fireside Chat, contact me through our website, firesidechatpodcast.com, or gary at thinkmedium.com. Thanks for listening. <laughs>